Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. But this was more than just grief. Anne's death seemed to trigger a return to the violent petulance of his youth. Richard summoned all his magnates to London for the funeral on July 29th. The Earl of Arundel arrived late, and when he came before the king, Richard hit him so hard in the face that he fell to the ground, bleeding. This was not the only funeral at which the king's behaviour seemed odd. Robert de Vere died in exile in France in 1392 after being wounded by a wild boar. His embalmed body was eventually brought back to England in November 1395. Many of the English magnates refused to attend this reinterment. Those who did watched as the king ordered his friend's coffin to be opened so that he might place gold rings on de Vere's cold, dead fingers and gaze on his face, three years expired one last time. After Anne's death and de Vere's burial, Richard grew more and more obsessed with Edward II. He encouraged the monks of Gloucester Abbey, where Edward was buried, to commemorate the murdered king every year, and in 1395 he petitioned the Pope to have his great-grandfather canonized. That same year he commissioned a strange epitaph for his own tomb at Westminster. It read, He threw down all who violated the royal prerogative, he destroyed heretics and scattered their friends. This might have been read as a reference to Richard's vigilance against the Lollards, Christian reformers who followed the teachings of John Wycliffe, but there was something potentially sinister about it, too. Like the ancestor he wished to canonize, Richard never truly understood the nature of successful kingship, which lay in balancing his public authority and the needs of the kingdom with his private wishes, friends, and tastes. His very reverence and pity for Edward II, a king who had brought nothing but disunity, violence, corruption, and bloodshed to his realm, spoke volumes about his understanding of a king's duty. The fact that he felt the need to retain his own public servants spoke of a deep-seated paranoia that had been with him from the earliest age. But there was another motivating instinct in Richard's personality, which dominated the final years of the fourteenth century, and which sat very uneasily with the king's self-perception as a man of peace. That was his unquenchable thirst for revenge. Richard Revenged After the savage turmoil that racked the first decade of his reign, Richard spent much of the following decade restoring some degree of confidence in his rule. Indeed, for the first part of the 1390s, government ran smoothly in partnership between king and council. Parliament did not attempt to purge the executive or humiliate the king. Royal revenues increased. In 1394, Richard led a seven-month expedition to Ireland, taking numerous young nobles and 7,000 men, to achieve what he called in a letter, the punishment of our rebels there, and to establish good government and just rule over our faithful lieges. The venture was highly successful. Richard achieved more in Ireland, in the short term at least, than any king since Henry II. In March 1396, a 28-year truce was finally concluded with France. It was cemented by a marriage agreement. 
Richard was to wed Charles VI's seven-year-old daughter Isabella with a handsome dowry of eight hundred thousand francs. When the bride was handed over in late October 1396, Richard and Charles met in Ardre, not far from Calais, to celebrate their agreement in a field studded with ornate tents brimming with jewels and gifts, golden model ships, horses with silver saddles and pearl collars. The two kings posed as the saviours of Christendom, because with England and France no longer at war, it was speculated that a single pope might now be elected to end the continuing Rome-Avignon schism. There was talk of launching a new crusade, this time against the Turks. It seemed to Thomas Walsingham that England was finally basking in peace, and the hope was for an entirely prosperous future on account of the magnificence of the king. On January 6, 1397, Richard turned thirty. It was a significant age, the final milestone in his long journey to manhood. At long last the king had arrived. Or had he? There had been a few ominous signs that even at the height of his success Richard remained deep down an acutely troubled king, hypersensitive, painfully insecure, and prone to outbursts of violence and bloody rage whenever he felt threatened. One of the first signs of acute paranoia came during the peace negotiations with France. The king wanted, in drafts of the pact, to bind Charles VI to provide military aid against the people of England if he thought it was necessary. This did not make it into the final agreement, but it was disturbing nonetheless. Richard had screamed at the Bishop of Arundel and his uncle Thomas Earl of Gloucester in 1386 that he would invite a French invasion if necessary to secure his throne. Here was an indication that the thought had never really left him. More obvious signs of discontent bubbled up during a Parliament held in January 1397. It had been convened in the aftermath of the truce with France, when it was made clear to the King that some did not share his joy at the new dispensation. There were mutterings, emanating chiefly from the Duke of Gloucester, that, as Froissart put it, "'The people of this country want war. They can't live decently without it. Peace is no good to them.' Others complained that a seven-year-old queen was of no use to a thirty-year-old king who had not yet produced an heir and there was disgruntlement over the epic scale of the celebrations at Ardres, which may have cost as much as fifteen thousand pounds the budget of a decent-sized military invasion. When Richard asked Parliament for money to aid the French king in an expedition to Milan, he was coldly rebuffed. He became agitated and addressed Parliament to defend the policy in person. When a petition, ostensibly written by Thomas Haxey, clerk, was put before him, complaining about the rogue activities of royal officials, the poor state of the Scottish border, his continuing habit of private retaining in the shires, and the great and excessive cost of the king's household, Richard flew into a rage, and had Haxey arrested and sentenced to a traitor's death. The sentence was later rescinded on account of Haxey's clerical status. All these signs suggested that in early 1397 the king, who described himself later in the same parliament as entire emperor of his realm of England, was feeling a growing indignation about having his imperial magnificence traduced. Nothing irked Richard so much as to suffer outspoken criticism. Never was he so dangerous as when backed into a corner. By July 1397 the most senior three of the appellants who had opposed the king a decade earlier once more found their relations very tense. Gloucester had positioned himself as the leading noble critic of the French truce, and was generally to be found holed up in his castle at Pleshy, conceiving, according to Froissart, such a hatred for the king that he could find nothing to say in his favour. Warwick, meanwhile, had been thoroughly isolated from politics for some years. Richard had ensured that two high-profile legal disputes had been turned against him. Arundel had long been isolated following numerous quarrels with the king and with John of Gaunt. He had begun to skip council meetings as his disapproval of the king mounted. In retrospect, it should have come as little surprise to all of them when Richard suddenly decided to come after them. An arrest party set out for Pleshy Castle after dinner on July 10, 1397, with Richard at its head. Well-armed men whose white heart liveries identified them as his faithful retainers, they rode hard through the dead of night. 
They were on a singular, very important mission to take the king's uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, into custody. Behind them in London they left the Earl of Warwick imprisoned in the tower. He had been Richard's dinner guest, and at the end of a convivial feast the king had risen, ordered the earl arrested, and had him thrown into prison. Now it was the duke's turn. At daybreak they arrived before the high stone walls of the fortress. They were prepared for a confrontation, but it quickly emerged that the duke had only a skeleton staff with him. The king's men far outnumbered his, and it was therefore with ease that they marched into the fortress. Richard greeted Gloucester as Fair Uncle. Then he had him arrested and taken away under armed guard to a ship that would transport him to a prison in Calais. This was the culmination of a coup carried out with all the speed and efficiency of Edward III's arrest of Roger Mortimer in 1330. Within the space of twenty-four hours, and with no prior warning, Richard arrested all three of the senior appellants of 1386. Gloucester and Warwick were taken by the king in person. Arundel was persuaded by his brother, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to turn himself in, and Richard had him sent to the Isle of Wight. The appellants had been abruptly and bewilderingly punished, and the kingdom was, in the words of Thomas Walsingham, suddenly and unexpectedly thrown into confusion. For the next two years England trembled under the tyranny of Richard II. In the aftermath of the coup a series of royal proclamations explained that the three lords had been arrested for offences against the king's majesty, but denied that these were offences relating to 1386. Few believed that this was true. Naturally all manner of theories abounded. The chroniclers of the time recorded their own suspicions. The French author of Chronique de la Trahison et Mort de Richard II, Roi d'Angleterre, heard that there had been an appellant conspiracy against Richard John of Gaunt and the Duke of York. Thomas Walsingham claimed that Richard believed that he was about to be elected Holy Roman Emperor, but that the electors wished to be convinced he could discipline his own subjects before granting him dominion over hundreds of thousands more. Others, like the chronicler Adam of Usk, simply disbelieved the king's proclamations, and wrote that Richard harboured a long-held grudge against his former enemies, and had merely been biding his time until he was politically ready to revenge himself. Whatever his motivations, it was remarkable how quickly Richard simply brushed his enemies aside. After their arrests on July 10, 1397, it took just three months for the king to rid himself entirely of his old foes. When Parliament opened on September 17, 1397, its members were packed with Ricardian loyalists, and proceedings were held under military guard. Because Westminster Hall was being refurbished, the meeting was held in a large, open-sided wooden structure. The commons and lords filed in under the glare of three hundred of Richard's Cheshire archers. Inside they found the king sitting high upon a throne, from which, according to the monk of Evesham, he could deliver his judgments, and preside with greater solemnity than any king of the realm ever had before. When the Chancellor, Bishop Stafford of Exeter, stood up to give the opening sermon, he told the assembly that the government had embraced a new doctrine. He took as his theme Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 22. There shall be one king over them all. It was an ominous beginning. As he warmed to his subject, Bishop Stafford announced to the assembly that if the king were to be powerful enough to govern, he must be in full possession of his regalities, prerogatives, and rights. Then a general pardon was issued, from which it was announced that fifty people, whom it would please the king to name, were excluded. But Richard did not name them. Instead, he invited anyone who thought he had anything to apologize for to seek the royal pardon in person. In the year that followed, five hundred individuals applied for and received the royal pardon. Richard was forcing his enemies to step forward and name themselves. Those who were pardoned had to pay heavily for it. A month before Parliament opened, Richard mirrored the events of that year by approving a new appeal of treason against his three enemies, lodged by seven noblemen, Richard's Holland nephew and half-brother, the Earls of Kent and Huntingdon, and the Earls of Somerset, Nottingham and Salisbury, along with Thomas, Lord Dispenser, and Sir William Scrope. Most of these men later claimed to have acted under duress, but their appeal was used to full effect. 
led by a hand-picked speaker, Sir John Bushy, whom Walsingham described as grovelling before Richard, as if praying to him, the packed, intimidated Parliament repealed the Act establishing the Council, along with the pardons extended to Gloucester, Arundel, and Warwick, in the aftermath of the merciless Parliament. Several days later, Archbishop Arundel of Canterbury, the Earl's brother, was removed from his post and sentenced to exile. During all this, John of Gaunt presided over Parliament as Lord High Steward. It was a cruel role for the ageing Duke to play, but he had his own interests to think of. He was in poor health, and since his absence in his Duchy of Aquitaine between 1394 and 1396, he had been sidelined from politics. Now he relied on Richard's favour to protect his eldest son, the former appellant Henry Bolingbroke, Earl of Derby, as well as to legitimise the bastard children he had fathered by his long-standing mistress and eventual third wife, Catherine Swinford. Gaunt, wearing a robe with a scarlet hood, did his duty. On Friday, September 21st, he stood by the King as the Earl of Arundel was brought before Parliament for trial. He was formally accused of treason for his actions in 1386, while the new appellants danced around and shouted abuse at him. "'Your pardon is revoked, traitor,' Gaunt told his old enemy, before pronouncing him guilty of treason and sentencing him to death. "'Where are the faithful commons?' demanded Arundel, looking bitterly around him. Then he told Speaker Bushy, "'I know all about you and your crew and how you got here.' It did him no good. He was led out of Parliament and beheaded with a sword on Tower Hill. His head came off with one stroke of the sword, and it was said that the torso stood on its own for as long as it took to recite the Lord's Prayer. Thomas Walsingham wrote that the Earl of Arundel haunted Richard as a ghost, threatening him with indescribable terrors. If so, it did not bend him from his purpose. The following Monday it was Gloucester's turn. Here was a doleful spectacle indeed, as another English king angled for the execution of a duke of royal blood. Thomas Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham, had been sent to Calais to accompany the duke back to Parliament. Now he entered a hushed assembly and delivered some astonishing news. The duke was dead. What Nottingham did not tell Parliament was that the duke had been murdered at Calais, on his and ultimately the king's direct orders. He had been taken from his prison cell to a house where he had been suffocated with a feather bed, probably on the night of September 8th, nine days before Parliament had opened. Nottingham read out a political confession in which Gloucester admitted to numerous crimes relating to the events of 1386, including a dubious admission that the appellants had agreed for several days to depose the king before renewing their homage when they could not decide which of them should take Richard's place. The confession ended with a plea that the king should accept me unto his mercy and to his grace, though I be unworthy. Even in death he was afforded no such mercy. He was posthumously condemned as a traitor. On Friday, September 28th, it was Warwick's turn. When he came before Parliament, he broke down in tears, blaming others for his involvement and howling for the king's mercy. It was a pathetic sight, a weak old man crying for his life. After pleas from various other lords, Richard condemned him to life imprisonment on the Isle of Man, and forfeiture of all his lands and goods. The enemies of 1386 were finally undone. A new political order was about to begin. By redistributing the numerous lands forfeited by his vanquished enemies, Richard created a huge new class of high nobility. The two appellants who had escaped punishment were John of Gaunt's son, Henry of Bolingbroke, Earl of Derby, and Thomas Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham. They were raised to Duke of Hereford and Norfolk, respectively, while Mowbray's grandmother, Margaret of Brotherton, became Duchess of Norfolk in her own right. Edmund, Duke of York's son, Edward, became Duke of Albemarle. Richard's nephew, Thomas Holland, Earl of Kent, became Duke of Surrey and the king's half-brother, John Holland, Earl of Huntingdon, became Duke of Exeter. John Beaufort, who was Earl of Somerset, was raised to Marquis of Dorset, and four new earls were created, the king's friends and courtiers Ralph Neville, Thomas Dispenser, Thomas Percy, and William Scrope became the earls of Westmoreland, Gloucester, Worcester, and Wiltshire, respectively. 
All this represented a massive shift of property, power, and wealth. It had been a bewildering fortnight. On September 30th, Parliament closed with a ceremony mimicking the end of the merciless Parliament, as the Lords swore before the Shrine of the Confessor to uphold everything that had been done. Richard sat enthroned, magnificent and absolute. The country trembled before him. As John Gower, one of his few literary protégés, wrote in disgust, During the month of September, savagery held sway by the sword. This audiobook is continued on Disc 17. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones continued. Disc 17 Richard Undone Coventry buzzed with excitement. Since daybreak on Monday, September 16, 1398, the tournament green at Gosford just outside the town had been filling with knights and nobles, bishops and visiting foreign dignitaries, and ordinary onlookers. Large, intricately decorated tents were manned by smartly dressed esquires in bright liveries of all colours, decorated with silver buckles and armour, their weapons gleaming dangerously by their sides. A rare event, one that had caught all England's attention, was due to take place at nine o'clock that morning. Two dukes of the realm were to undergo trial by battle in front of the king. By the end of the day, either Henry Bolingbroke, Duke of Hereford, or Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, would probably be dead. The victor would be vindicated. It was to be one of the great chivalric occasions of the age. Bolingbroke and Mowbray had been allies in 1386 when they had joined the appellants to challenge the king. They had retained favour with the king in the purge of 1397, avoiding the fates of Gloucester, Arundel, and Warwick, and profiting handsomely in the distribution of land and titles that followed. Now, however, they were mortal enemies. A fierce dispute between them had spilled over into accusations of treason made before the king in Parliament. Richard, in his magnificence, had decided that the only way to settle the quarrel was in armed combat. The argument was deep-rooted and complex. It centred on an allegation made by Bolingbroke at a Parliament in 1398. The Duke had told the King and the assembled lords that Mowbray, shaken by the actions of Richard's revenge Parliament, had warned him that the two of them were soon to be undone for their initial support of the appellants. According to Bolingbroke, Mowbray had told him that their pardons were worthless, and that plots stemming from the king himself existed to kill both Bolingbroke and his father John of Gaunt, reverse the pardons given to Thomas of Lancaster in 1327, and take the entire Duchy of Lancaster into royal hands. These were serious allegations. Either Mowbray was trying to turn powerful lords against the king, or he did indeed believe that Richard was planning to wipe out the whole house of Lancaster, removing Gaunt and his son from the Plantagenet succession, and thereby seizing another one of the great inheritances in England for himself. In actual fact, the dispute ran deeper. A factional split was emerging at Richard's court between those nobles affiliated with Gaunt, Bolingbroke, and the house of Lancaster, and those who viewed the Lancastrians with suspicion, hostility, and jealousy. It now seems likely that it was Mowbray rather than Richard who had countenanced their deaths. Richard strongly suspected that his cousin Bolingbroke was telling the truth, and imprisoned Mowbray in the royal wardrobe. But the charges could not be proved, and because Mowbray disowned them in the strongest possible terms, refused to be reconciled with Bolingbroke, and demanded that a trial by battle be held, that was the course the king had chosen to follow. Thus Coventry was alive with nervous tension, feverish spectators, and the armed retainers of the kingdom's greatest lords, all keen to see who would emerge alive from the latest grisly drama of Richard II's despotic reign. At nine o'clock Bolingbroke rode out to Gosford mounted on a white courser, the giant horse's saddle decorated in blue and green velvet embroidered with gold swans and antelopes. He was accompanied by six liveried attendants, and wore brilliant plate and mail armour, which he had acquired at great expense from Gian Galeazzo Visconti, Duke of Milan. He carried a long sword, a short sword, and a dagger, and his silver shield had painted on it a bright red cross, the arms of England and St. George. 
he announced to the constable and marshal of England that he had come to prosecute my appeal in combating Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, who is a traitor, false and recreant to God, the King, his realm, and me. He swore his oaths, had his weapons checked and blessed, and was given a small portion of food and wine with which to sustain himself during a battle that might last until sunset. Then he pulled down the visor on his helmet, signed himself with the cross, took his lance from an attendant, and rode forward to his pavilion, decorated all over in red roses, to wait for Mowbray. Next came the king, amid much fanfare from his heralds. Richard was dressed magnificently as usual, and accompanied by his large private army of Cheshire archers and men-at-arms. The air bristled with violent intent as Sir John Bushy, Richard's loyal speaker of the Commons, announced to the crowd that no one should so much as touch the wooden lists that surrounded the tournament field, on pain of having his hand chopped off. Then the Duke of Norfolk arrived, clad in red velvet with silver lions and mulberry trees on his horse. He swore his oaths and went to his own pavilion. As he rode through the barriers he cried, God speed the right! The time had come for battle. The Duke's lances were measured, and the pavilions were rapidly dismantled behind them to leave the lists open for combat. Each man mounted his horse. The constable and marshal retreated. Justice would now be served. Bolingbroke advanced toward his rival. Mowbray stood stock still. Everyone waited for the first blow to be struck. Suddenly Richard stood up, shouting, Ho! Ho! Everyone stopped, stunned. There was a great commotion in the crowd as each duke was sent back to his tent with his lance confiscated. And there they sat for two hours as the king retreated into private deliberation. At length Bushy stepped forward once more and announced to the crowd the king's verdict. The trial was over. There would be no combat. Indulging his compulsion to acts of high drama and majesty, Richard had decided that both men were to be banished from the realm, Bolingbroke for ten years, later reduced to six, and Mowbray for life. The chronicler Thomas Walsingham called the period between 1397 and 1399 Richard's tyranny, and he was right to do so. The full force of royal might and prerogative which was supposed to exist for the protection of the king's subjects was turned against them for the enrichment of the king. With the aborted trial of Mowbray and Bolingbroke, Richard's theatrical absolutism, which had begun in 1397, reached its peak. Plantagenet rule had been founded on the protection of land, property, and wealth. Drunk on his own authority, Richard, like Edward II before him, turned kingship on its head. Surrounding the king was his Cheshire retinue, knights, squires, and archers who wore the livery of the White Hart, and took salaries by the day to do what ought to have been their natural duty of protecting their king. Richard went everywhere with thuggish archers and men-at-arms, who spoke to one another in their broad northern dialect, and addressed the king by the familiar name of Dicon. Dicon. Barrel-chested guards waited outside his chamber at night bearing massive battle-axes, saying to him, Dicon, sleep securely while we wake. According to Adam of Usk, a Lancastrian supporter but a writer with good sources, the Cheshire men committed brutal crimes with impunity. Wherever the king went, they stood guard over him, committing adulteries, murders, and countless other crimes. Richard went everywhere with a big fierce greyhound by his side, which had belonged to the Earl of Kent before his death. Richard's actions were hardly those of a king. Constantly on his guard, constantly menacing his people, he seemed more like an overbearing private magnate at war with his entire realm. In the summer of 1397 the king had begun to demand forced loans from his subjects. Letters stamped with the privy seal were sent into the shires demanding specific amounts of money. The names of the lenders were left blank. Richard's officials simply issued these form letters of legalized theft to anyone they identified as rich enough to pay. Around the same time the king also began to compel his subjects to put their seals to charters, in which they pledged their lives and property unreservedly to him. In the event that they should fall into royal disfavor, 
These charters could be used to ruin men in an instant. As the king's paranoia grew, he even demanded blank charters, clean sheets of paper on which a subject was forced to affix his seal, which could be used, as Walsingham put it, so that whenever he wished to make attacks on sealants, he might have the means to attack them individually. There could have been no more flagrant way to breach the Magna Carta, that hallowed founding document of the English polity, which was renewed customarily at every Parliament. Here was Richard at his most powerful, spinning a web of financial liability and terror. Whole counties and cities were made to buy their pardons from the royal wrath for extortionate sums, forced to guarantee their good behaviour at the cost of thousands of pounds. A general pardon was issued to the realm in 1397 for rather vague collective offences against the king's majesty, but it was made conditional upon Richard's receiving customs revenues for life. The new dukes of Albemarle and Kent, Richard's cousin and nephew, were given license to use the laws of treason to hunt out enemies of the king. Richard seemed to believe that his vengeful hand was bringing his realm to peace. In 1397 he wrote to Albert of Bavaria that the avenging severity that had been meted out to the destruction and ruin of his enemies had brought to our subjects a peace which, by the grace of God, may last forever. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Far from pacifying the realm, his rule of terror enforced by a swelling private retinue was forcing it into a state of incipient civil war. As the king built up his retainers, so did his lords. His mass redistributions of lands caused serious disruption to local power structures. His habit of retaining men-at-arms wherever he went cut into the magnates' territorial orbits and destabilized shire communities, which were keenly balanced by loyalties to local magnates. Richard's behaviour was at times psychopathic and intimidated even his own courtiers. One vivid report recalled how, on solemn occasions when by custom he performed kingly rituals, he would order a throne to be prepared for him in his chamber, on which he liked to sit ostentatiously from after dinner until vespers, talking to no one but watching every one, and when his eye fell on any one regardless of rank, that person had to bend his knee toward the king. The whole atmosphere of terror shook his people into a restless state. It was not just the aristocracy. There were outbursts of popular rebellion and dissent, too. A rising of Oxfordshire yeomen in March 1398 threatened to kill the king and nobles. A simultaneous outbreak in Berkshire sought to ambush the king as he passed through the county. And while most of the new nobility who owed their whole position to Richard and stood to lose it all in the withering heat of his glare professed their loyalty to him, that loyalty was paper-thin. Quarrels, feuds, and plots between Richard's nobles were allowed to flourish, and so it was that the Bolingbroke-Mowbray dispute, which brought out so many aspects of Richard's tyranny, had become a moment of national drama, the high point of which was the king's restatement of his own absolute power of judgment over life and death. When Bolingbroke left London to begin his six-year term of banishment in October 1398, the streets were lined with sorrowful citizens, proclaiming, according to Froissart, that this country will never be happy until you return. This was just the popularity that Richard feared in others, and one of the motivating factors in Bolingbroke's banishment. None of them could possibly have realized just how soon the king's cousin would be back. On February 3, 1399, John of Gaunt died at Leicester Castle. He was fifty-eight, and was buried with what Adam of Us called Great Pomp at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, after a slow procession through the English countryside, his cortege surrounded by black-clad mourners. The king visited his uncle on his deathbed, and a later story was put about that before he died, Gaunt showed Richard the ulcers around his genitals, as a somewhat superfluous warning against lechery. Gaunt had not been universally popular during his long life and career, but he had led a life of adventure and loyal service to the Plantagenet family during some very trying circumstances. He had headed great armies and splendid embassies. He had fought long and hard to have himself crowned a king in Spain, an effort that yielded him no crown, but he had raised two of his daughters to become queen's consort of Portugal and Castile. 
At home he had fought equally obdurately to protect the rights of the Plantagenet crown during the last years of Edward III and of the Duchy of Lancaster during Richard II's reign. He had been an early sponsor of the radical theologian John Wycliffe, and a key figure in London's fractious politics. Most important, he had built up an unparalleled landed inheritance worth well over £12,000 a year. Whoever inherited the Duchy of Lancaster would also inherit Gaunt's position as by some distance the richest and most powerful magnate in England, superseded only by the king. It was inevitable that as Richard built up his vast landed power block, he should come into conflict with the Duchy of Lancaster, and indeed great expanses of the Midlands were riven with conflict, as the King's and John of Gaunt's spheres of private influence overlapped, and competition grew for retainers. It was to Henry Bolingbroke, Gaunt's eldest son, that his death meant most, for Bolingbroke was heir to the whole Duchy of Lancaster, and that made him by 1399 a terrifying spectre to his cousin Richard II. After the aborted duel at Coventry, both Bolingbroke and Mowbray had left England. Mowbray, who was stripped of his duchy, had decided to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and had died of the plague in Venice. But Bolingbroke, whose exile was generally held to be unfair, had gone to the court of Charles VI in Paris, where he was made welcome, and could monitor the situation in England from close at hand. What he saw was a king striving to conquer his own country. One by one the great and ancient English lordships were falling into the hands of Richard and his cronies. Lands and castles that once belonged to Warwick, Gloucester, Arundel, and Norfolk had all reverted to the king. In 1398 Roger Mortimer, fourth Earl of March, and Richard's possible heir through the female succession of Lionel of Antwerp, had been killed in Ireland. His son Edmund was a young boy, and thus the March lands too had reverted to the king in wardship. After Gaunt's funeral Richard went to King's Langley, the favourite residence of Edward II, the place where Piers Gaveston's body had been laid to rest, and where Edward had brooded on revenge over his own Lancastrian nemesis. By the time he reached King's Langley, he had made a fateful decision. According to his loyal servant Sir William Baggett, Richard declared that he would sooner restore the heirs of Gloucester, Warwick, and Arundel than allow Bolingbroke back into England. Baggett sent a message to Bolingbroke, advising him that he was now the king's full enemy. Richard convened a council in Westminster on March 18th in which he formally annulled Bolingbroke's right to inherit the Duchy of Lancaster, and sentenced him to perpetual banishment. The ultimate land-grab was complete. Everything that Gaunt had feared in his final years had come to pass. In the spring of 1399 great swaths of his inheritance were doled out to key Ricardian supporters. Lancaster, Tutbury, and Kenilworth went to Thomas Holland, Duke of Surrey the Welsh lands to John Holland, Duke of Exeter. Leicester, Pontefract, and Bolingbroke itself were granted to Richard's cousin, the Duke of Albemarle. Most of the rest remained in royal hands, its vast revenues now pouring straight into the treasuries Richard was building up in royal castles. To everyone in England it was now clear, as Walsingham put it, that Richard had banished his cousin not for the quarrel with Mowbray, but because it was a good opportunity of seizing the Duke's property. Richard was no king, he was a wanton thief. With this last land-grab he had sealed his own fate. When news of his disinheritance reached Bolingbroke in Paris, it could hardly have come as a surprise. He had known Richard all his life, and had been at close quarters during every crisis of the realm, hidden in a cupboard in the Tower of London during the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, and standing on both sides of Richard's long-running war with the appellants he knew that the king was not a man to be trusted. He might, however, have been surprised by the other news that reached Paris around the same time. The king was preparing to lead a second invasion of Ireland. He would be taking his supporters and much of his private retinue across the Irish Sea, leaving England unguarded for months. It was too good an opportunity to miss. Richard had enemies in both England and France, and Henry made contact with all of them. His first ally was Thomas Fitzalan, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, whom Richard had stripped of his office and exiled at the same time as Fitzalan's brother, the Earl of Arundel, was executed. 
The Arundels and Lancastrians might not always have seen eye to eye, but they were united in their hatred of the king. In England they made contact with the disaffected Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, and Ralph Neville, Earl of Westmoreland. Henry was convinced by what he heard from these men that an invasion in pursuit of his inheritance would find favour among enough other lords to make it feasible. Richard left for Ireland at the end of May and landed on June 1st. He must have known that an invasion was possible or even likely, because he took with him his crowns and regalia, the essential tokens of Plantagenet kingship, as well as Henry of Monmouth, Bolingbroke's son. He also took most of his loyal nobles, and large numbers of men-at-arms and archers, and with them set about bringing various Irish chieftains to heel. Unimpeded by a French government disabled by the recurring insanity of Charles VI, Bolingbroke left France at the end of June. On July 4, 1399, he landed near Ravenspur at the mouth of the Humber River. He disembarked with a tiny contingent of no more than one hundred men, hardly a fearsome invasion. But the moment he landed, wrote the Kirkstall chronicler, a great multitude of knights and squires came to him. They included a broad coalition of northern earls and knights, including Harry Hotspur, Northumberland's son, who was reputed to be the finest knight in England. Now Richard's kingdom, so long bullied and blackmailed, simply melted into Bolingbroke's arms. The author of a sympathetic account of Richard's last years, known as the Chronique de la Trahison et Mort de Richard II, Roi d'Angleterre, wrote that there was no good mother's son who did not go to the duke and offer him both his services and his goods. All England rang with news of Bolingbroke's arrival. The government left behind by Richard was headed by Edmund Langley, Duke of York, uncle to both Bolingbroke and the king, and served by royal favourites, including Sir John Bushy and Sir Richard Scrope. They attempted to muster a loyal army at Oxford in mid-July, but as the Midlands surged to Bolingbroke's side, they were forced to pull back ever farther west. Adam of Usk estimated that Bolingbroke raised one hundred thousand men, for once a chronicler may not have exaggerated. Richard returned to England at the end of July and attempted to raise an army of his own in South Wales. But Bolingbroke was already at Bristol, and word was flooding across the border from England that virtually the whole country was abandoning the king. Disguising himself as a Franciscan friar, the king, along with a few colleagues, left the men he had mustered in the south, and rode north across Wales to Conwy, where the Earl of Salisbury was raising a loyalist army. When he arrived there was further disappointment. The Earl's forty-thousand-strong army was deserting in droves, and carrying off the king's belongings, gold and silver, jewels, good horses, and fine robes. By the beginning of August, Bolingbroke was almost the undisputed master of England. As Richard sat helpless in Conway Castle, praying to God and the Virgin Mary for intervention, and telling friends that he hoped the King of France would come to his aid, the kingdom demonstrated just how little loyalty it owed him. On August 5th, the Principality of Chester, the very heart of Richard's power, sued for peace. On August 9th, Chester Castle surrendered to Henry's army with not even a show of resistance. Although the Duke commanded that there should be no massacre of the Cheshire men, there was still sufficient looting and devastation for Adam of Usk to find Coddington Church, where he attempted to celebrate Mass, emptied of everything but the doors and broken chests. Richard was undone. His allies, the Duke of Albemarle and the Earl of Worcester, rallied to Bolingbroke's side. His half-brother, the Duke of Exeter, and his nephew, the Duke of Surrey, were taken prisoner. Bolingbroke, citing his authority as the steward of England, sent the Earl of Northumberland to Conway Castle to bring Richard in. The terms were abhorrent to a king still possessed by dreams of his own regality. He was summoned to appear of his own free will at a Parliament in which Bolingbroke would sit as Chief Judge of England, and at which five of his allies would be tried for treason, the Dukes of Exeter and Surrey, the Earl of Salisbury and the Bishop of Carlisle, and Richard Maudlin. The King flew into his customary rage, ranting that he would have his opponents put to death. "'There are some of them,' he said, "'whom I will flay alive.' But he had no choice." he had to accompany Northumberland. Richard and Henry met face to face at Flint. 
Although the king was now clearly the duke's prisoner, they went through a charade of noble courtesy. Bolingbroke bowed low to the king. Richard addressed him as fair cousin of Lancaster. According to the author of the Trahison et Mort, who was an eye-witness to this encounter, Bolingbroke then told Richard that he had returned to England, "'Before you sent for me, because you have not ruled well these twenty-two years, and therefore with the consent of the commons I will help you to govern it.' "'Fair cousin, since it pleases you, it pleases us well,' said Richard. Then he formally surrendered himself to his cousin. He and Salisbury were given two very poor horses to ride, and they set out with Bolingbroke under armed guard for Chester. The castle was no longer the military stronghold of a paranoid king, but his prison. Richard Alone on September 21, 1399, the Earl of Warwick's brother, Sir William Beecham, went to visit King Richard, now a prisoner at the Tower of London. Sir William was accompanied by Adam of Usk, who noted in his chronicle that the visit happened to fall on the second anniversary of Arundel's beheading. Beecham and Usk, hearty loyalists to the Bolingbroke cause, came with what the latter called the specific intention of ascertaining Richard's mood and behaviour. Richard had been imprisoned in the tower for nineteen days. His young wife Isabella was in Bolingbroke's hands too, kept in honourable confinement in Sonning in Berkshire. The king had been moved on his cousin's command from Chester Castle at the end of August, and had arrived in London on September 2nd. Although he was confined to apartments rather than in a dungeon, his visitors still found him in dismal mood. Deprived of his regular servants and surrounded by Lancastrian spies, the diminished king was finally alone. Even his greyhound was gone, having abandoned him while the king was in South Wales. Richard was understandably miserable. There could have been no more evocative place than the tower for the duke to place him. The royal prison was the very fortress in which both had taken refuge during the Great Rebellion in 1381, when Henry had only narrowly escaped capture and certain death. Richard must have recalled childhood memories of looking out over the smouldering city of London from a lonely window at the top of the tower, and seeing his whole country risen in uproar. Now he was back, and although the realm was no longer in the grip of peasant anarchy, it had once again turned against his rule. As he sat down to dinner with his guests, Richard began to discourse dolefully, wrote Usk. My God, this is a strange and fickle land, said the king, which has destroyed and ruined so many kings, so many rulers, so many great men, and which never ceases to be riven and worn down by dissensions and strife and internecine hatreds. Then he started enumerating sad stories of previous English kings undone by their people. Usk heard him recount, the names and histories of those who had suffered such fates from the time when the realm was first inhabited. It was a pathetic sight. A king who revelled in the ancient tales of his ancestors' deeds now found history repeating itself, with himself as the victim. Seeing the troubles of his soul, wrote Usk, and seeing that none of those who had been deputed to wait upon him were in any way bound to him or used to serving him, but were strangers who had been sent there simply to spy on him, I departed much moved at heart, reflecting to myself on the glories of his former state and on the fickle fortune of the world. Usk did not detail which tales of royal misery Richard had recounted, but it is not hard to guess at whom he might have mentioned his hero Edward the Confessor, who had suffered several rebellions and died in the aftermath of a Northumbrian revolt, King John, the first of the Plantagenets to have his royal prerogative forcibly circumscribed by the will of the barons, Henry III, who was made a prisoner of his own barons, Edward II, whom he had tried to rescue from the ignominy of history. In his own way Richard had been a worse king than all of them combined, like the confessor, he had considered his own divinity above the practical necessity of having children to continue his royal line. Like Henry III, he had obsessed over holy rituals while allowing English conquest in France to collapse. Like John, he had tyrannized his people. Like Edward II, he had antagonized the House of Lancaster, stolen land from his nobles, tainted politics with treason, 
and proved himself incorrigible over the lengthy course of a reign in which he had been offered many chances to reform his ways. More generally, he had listened to the counsel of unworthy advisers, and attacked and plundered his subject's property rather than defend it. He had built himself up as an antagonistic private lord, rather than fulfil his higher duty to be a source of public authority. He had believed that kingship was about prestige and magnificence instead of leadership, and he had ended up with nothing. Nine days after Rusk dined with the king, on Tuesday, September 30th, the Lords of England gathered with an assembly of the Commons at Westminster Hall. It was a Parliament in all but name, although without the King's authority it could not claim full parliamentary status. An empty throne draped with gold cloth stood at one end of the hall. Richard remained in the Tower of London. Richard Scrope, Archbishop of York, stood up and read a statement to the Assembly. Richard, he said, had agreed to resign the crown on the ground of his own inadequacy. Thomas Arundel, now restored as Archbishop of Canterbury, stood and asked if the people would accept this. According to the official record, each lord agreed. Then the Commons shouted their assent. Had Richard really resigned? Certainly it seems that he had no choice. The official record was made to give the impression that he had given up his crown willingly, saying that he had asserted in his abdication that he was worthy to be deposed. But the Trisai Moor, a loyal source, suggests otherwise. It records a fierce argument between Bolingbroke and Richard, which took place one evening before the Parliament. The latter swore and cursed and demanded to see his wife, while Bolingbroke refused to release him from the Tower or to do anything else without parliamentary process. According to the Trisai Moor, the king was in great wrath, but he could not help himself, and said to the duke that he did great wrong both to him and to the crown. The duke replied, We cannot do anything till the parliament meets. The king was so enraged by this speech that he could scarcely speak, and paced twenty-three steps down the room without uttering a word, and presently he broke out thus, You have acknowledged me your king these twenty-two years. How dare you use me so cruelly! I say that you behave to me like false men, and like false traitors to their lord, and this I will prove, and fight four of the best of you, and this is my pledge. Saying which, the king threw down his bonnet. It made no difference. The assembly that met to agree the king's deposition moved rapidly through a new and unprecedented legal process. They listened as thirty-three articles of deposition were read out by the bishop of St. Asaph. The articles were a litany of Richard's failings, from the start of his reign to his tyrannical last days. They covered his evil rule in the 1380s, his destruction of the appellants, against whom the king was extremely indignant because they wished the king to be under good rule, his raising of an army against the people under de Vere, his use of the great multitude of malefactors from Cheshire against his own subjects, the extortionate selling of pardons, falsification of the parliamentary record, the denial of justice to Bolingbroke, misuse of taxation and loans, a refusal to keep and defend the just laws and customs of the realm, numerous counts of extortion and deception, removal of the crown jewels to Ireland, breaches of the Magna Carta, and a general withering clause that simply stated that the king was so variable and dissimulating in his words and writings, especially to popes and rulers outside the realm, that no one could trust him. After reading the articles, the Bishop of St. Asaph passed the sentence of deposition. Then Bolingbroke rose from his place in the Parliament, crossed himself, and claimed the realm as his, saying in English, In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I, Henry of Lancaster, challenge this realm of England and the crown with all its members and appurtenances, as I am descended by the right line of the blood coming from the good Lord King Henry the Third, and through that right that God of His grace has sent me, with the help of my kindred and my friends, to recover it. The which realm was on the point of being undone for default of governance and undoing of good laws. He pulled out Richard the Second's signet, showed it to the people, and took Archbishop Arundel's hand in his own. The Archbishop of Canterbury led Henry Bolingbroke up toward the golden throne at the front of the hall. Henry knelt and prayed before it. 
When he opened his eyes, the archbishops of Canterbury and York took an arm each and seated him on the throne. The great hall of Westminster roared with the acclaim and applause of the lords and commons. The air in the hall vibrated with the cries of the people of England. The noise rounded upward toward the hammer-beam ceiling built by Henry Yeverley at such lavish royal expense. It swirled around the decorative white hearts that skirted the walls, and rebounded off the statues of the thirteen kings who had ruled England between Edward the Confessor and Richard the Second, and it reverberated in the ears of the first king of a new dynasty, Henry Bolingbroke, who would become the first king of the House of Lancaster. A new king had been elected, or looked at another way, the crown of England had been abruptly seized. On October 1st, 1399, Richard II was formally and ceremonially stripped of his allegiances and his crown. Within four months he would be dead, having starved in prison at Pontefract Castle. Meanwhile, Henry Duke of Lancaster was crowned Henry IV of England on October 13th, the feast day of Edward the Confessor. The choice of date was intended to make a point about the new king's own royal blood but it could not conceal the bare facts. After eight generations and two hundred and forty-five years of rule, the unbroken succession of the Plantagenets had ended. Great magnates might now wrestle for the crown among themselves. Richard II, by his folly, his greed, and his terrible, destructive misapprehension of virtually every aspect of kingship, had cast everything he had inherited onto the bonfire of history. A new age of English kingship had begun. Epilogue At the time of his usurpation, Henry IV was likened by his staunch supporter Archbishop Arundel to Judas Maccabeus, the popular biblical hero who had led God's chosen people in rebellion against their oppressors, driven the iniquitous out of Jerusalem, and repurified the temple. It was a pointed analogy. Like Henry, Maccabeus had risen up to lead his people thanks to a blend of personal valour and military genius. He was a king who had earned his status by his righteousness rather than by birth alone. The beginning of Henry's reign brought with it an intense propaganda drive, intended to emphasise the new king's sanctity as well as his pragmatic suitability for office. Not only was he crowned on St. Edward's Day, 1399, but he was anointed at his coronation with the vial of holy oil that had supposedly been given to Archbishop Thomas Becket by the Virgin Mary, and that had subsequently come into the possession of the new king's grandfather, Edward III's great war captain, Henry of Gromont. At the feast that celebrated Henry's coronation, there was a pointed edge to the arrival in Westminster Hall of a knight, Sir Thomas Dimmock, who claimed to be the king's champion, and who announced to the assembled guests that if anyone disputed Henry's right to be king of England, then he was ready to prove the contrary with his body then and there. No one rose to the challenge. If Henry's approval as the new king of England seemed indisputable, then Richard's death, four months after his deposition, was inevitable. Adam of Usk marvelled at the speed with which the old king had fallen, cast down by the wheel of fortune to fall miserably in the hands of Duke Henry amid the silent curses of your people. He addressed Richard rhetorically when he wrote that had the king been guided in your affairs by God and by the support of your people, then you would indeed have been deserving of praise. Indeed, to judge by the ease and speed with which Henry Bolingbroke took the throne, there was little general mourning for Richard. Nevertheless, like Edward II, Richard Alive presented a focus for plotting by the fallen favourites of the old regime. In December 1399 a plot was hatched by a group of former loyalists led by Edward Earl of Rutland, Richard's cousin who had been stripped in Parliament of his Duchy of Albemarle, John Montague Earl of Salisbury, and Richard's half-brother John Holland, and nephew Thomas Holland, who had also been demoted respectively from their Duchies of Exeter and Surrey. The conspirators planned to storm Windsor Castle on the Feast of Epiphany, January the 6th, 1400, Richard's 43rd birthday, disrupting the Twelfth Night celebrations, kidnapping the new king and his son Prince Harry, who had been made Prince of Wales, Duke of Aquitaine, Lancaster and Cornwall and Earl of Chester, and subsequently setting the old king at liberty. 
However, fortune had long deserted Richard and his partisans, the plot was betrayed and easily disrupted. Neither Henry nor the prince was captured, and the rebels scattered across England, attempting unsuccessfully to raise popular rebellion as they went. Thomas Holland and the Earl of Salisbury were beheaded by angry townsmen in Cirencester. John Holland was beheaded by popular demand at sunset at Pleshy, on exactly the spot where the Earl of Gloucester had been arrested by Richard in 1397, and Sir Thomas Dispenser, another conspirator, was killed by the commons at Bristol. Far from a popular rising in favour of the old king, there was spontaneous and widespread rage at the efforts of his former allies to disrupt the English polity once again. The failure of the Epiphany plot prompted Richard's final demise. The former king had been sent to serve his sentence of life imprisonment at Pontefract, and according to Thomas Walsingham, when he heard of these unhappy events, his mind became disturbed, and he killed himself by voluntary fasting, so the rumour went. The more sympathetic author of the Trahison et Mort suggested foul play, claiming that the king was killed by one Sir Piers Exton, who staved in the king's head with an axe. It is most likely that the truth lies somewhere between the extremes, and that Richard was deliberately starved on the orders of the new king's regime, which could no more tolerate his presence in the realm than Roger Mortimer had been able to suffer that of Edward II in 1327. Adam 